You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this, our 11th lecture for the International Catholic University on the subject of logic, we're going to be talking about the sophistic part of logic. Now, in our last lecture, we talked about dialectic and Aristotle's topics. Now, dialectic gives us tools for fair intellectual combat, the dialectical syllogism and the induction. Now, these tools do not give their possessors the ability to come to certain knowledge. That's reserved for the demonstrative syllogism. But they do give him a dialectical power, an ability to dispute in a reasonable way about anything at all. But just as there are tools for a fair intellectual combat, so there are tools for an unfair intellectual combat we could make a comparison to boxing. It's fair for a boxer to use boxing gloves, but putting brass knuckles in his boxing gloves would be unfair. The gloves are weapons of fair combat, brass knuckles for unfair combat. So just as in boxing, so also in intellectual combat. There are tools that are fair, like induction and the dialectical syllogism. And there are tools that are unfair. Sophistical reasoning is the use of unfair tools in intellectual combat. Now, in today's lecture, we're going to talk about Aristotle's book called Sophistical Refutations. In that book, he describes sophistical reasoning and the tools used by the sophist to carry out his unfair intellectual combat. Knowing them, we can defend ourselves from him. Now, before we actually get into the details of the sophistic part of logic, I want to talk a little bit about why I'm doing the lectures in this order. We talked about the judging part of logic in lectures 7, 8, and 9. And in lecture 10, we talked about the beginning of the discovering part of logic, dialectic. Now, it seems that in this lecture, I should probably complete my discussion of the discovering part of logic instead of jumping to the third and last part sophistical logic, but I follow the order that I do for two reasons. Now first, there's simply the tradition. In many editions of Aristotle's works, the rhetoric and poetics are put outside of the organon. So normally, a logic course does not deal with those topics. And I think there's a good reason for putting those two outside of the order of the organon. But I think there's also a good reason for covering them in a logic course. And the reason is that logic, like many other terms, is a word with many meanings related in an order. That is, it's an analogous word. This is the definition of logic in the strict sense of the term. Logic is the art which directs the actions of reason in its acquisition of speculative knowledge. Now, when we look at rhetoric and poetic, we see they're not parts of logic strictly defined. 
because rhetoric and poetic both have an end outside of speculative knowledge. Rhetoric, through persuasion, tries to move men to action, to something practical, not just the speculative. Poetry aims at beauty, the appreciation of the beautiful. Once again, that's practical, that's outside of the realm of the speculative. So, according to the strict definition of the term logic, rhetoric and poetic are not parts of logic. But we don't want to say that they fall outside of logic in every way in which I could possibly use that term. We can give a second good, meaningful definition of logic, which is analogous to the first. We could say that logic is the art which directs the actions of reason. This differs from the first simply by cutting off the last part, which said, in its acquisition of speculative knowledge. When I cut off that last part, I use logic in a broader sense, and I bring in rhetoric and poetic. Because reason undertakes the task of persuading, and reason directs the art of making poetry. That is, reason is acting, and therefore reason needs something to direct its actions. So, since reason in both cases is the primary actor in both rhetoric and poetics, then there ought to be parts of logic which direct reason. So, in the narrow sense, rhetoric and poetics are outside of logic. In the broader sense, they're included within. Now, let's return to our discussion, however, of sophistic logic which is included in logic in the narrow sense because it enables us to avoid errors in reasoning with regard to our acquisition of speculative knowledge. I want to first take up the order in which I'm going to discuss things. First, we're going to talk about what a sophist is. Second, we're going to talk about the kind of power that the sophist has, the sophistic power Third, we're going to talk about the tools which the sophist uses, the fallacies. Now, in his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, St. Thomas describes the difference between the wise man, the philosopher, and the sophist. He writes, But the philosopher differs from the sophist in choice, that is, in selecting or willing, or in desiring a way of life. For the philosopher and the sophist direct their life and actions to different things. The philosopher directs his to knowing the truth, whereas the sophist directs his to appearing to know what he does not know. Right away, we see here a certain notion that's going to be very important for understanding the sophist. The notion of deceptive appearance. The sophist wants to appear to be in a way that he's not. He wants to appear to have knowledge when he doesn't have it. He wants to appear to be wise when he is not wise. Now, Aristotle, in the beginning of the sophistical refutations, makes a similar point. The art of the sophist is the semblance of wisdom without the reality. And the sophist is one who makes money from an apparent but unreal wisdom. Now, Aristotle has in mind something very specific. There were men in his time who went around 
the Greek city-states and offered to teach for a fee the art of disputing well, living well, and being powerful. These men often made great sums of money. However, they did not care about actually being wise, about actually being able to teach the art which they claimed to possess, teach that art to their pupils. It was enough for them that they could appear to be wise and appear to teach this art so that their pupils would pay them. And so anyone who values more the appearance of wisdom than its reality is a sophist in his heart, that is, by his own choice. Now, the question is, how can a person appear to be wise when he's not so? And the answer is, if he takes on the superficial characteristics of the wise man. Now, the sophist takes on that deceptive likeness to the wise man. Aristotle, in order to even further elaborate this idea of deceptive likeness, uses the example of a distinction between precious and non-precious metals. Tin, for example, has the outward appearance of silver, brass the outward appearance of gold. The inexperienced, seeing that outward appearance, might take tin and brass for silver and gold. In the same way, a wise man has certain outward characteristics. The sophist imitates those characteristics, and his power to imitate those characteristics constitutes his sophistic power, a power to deceive the inexperienced. Now, what are those superficial characteristics of the wise man? In another passage near the beginning of the sophistical refutations, Aristotle describes the likeness between the wise man and the sophist, that is, the superficial characteristics. He says, It is the business of one who knows a thing himself to avoid mistakes on the subject which he knows and to be able to show up the man who makes them. And of these accomplishments, the one depends on the power to render an answer, the other upon the securing of one. That is, it's the task of the wise man to avoid making mistakes in a dispute, to avoid being refuted by another, because he knows what he's talking about. And when others contradict him, it's his task to refute those others, to show that they do not know what they are speaking about. Because the wise man possesses real knowledge, he avoids being refuted, and he refutes those who disagree with him. If the sophist wants to appear to be a wise man, he must take on the appearance, first, of avoiding being refuted himself, and second, and more importantly, of refuting those who disagree with him. The appearance, not the reality, of being of refutation. And that's why Aristotle's book on the sophistic part of logic is called On Sophistical Refutations. The sophist appears to avoid refutation and appears to refute others. Now, since the wise man is often the man who has the power of demonstrating in a particular science, it's often more helpful to go down a step and talk not to contrast the sophist, rather, not so much with the wise man 
as with the man who has the dialectical power. Because we saw that dialectic is a power of fair intellectual combat, whereas sophistry is the power of unfair intellectual combat. Now, if you're in a fair intellectual combat and you have the dialectical power, you have a power fairly of avoiding being refuted and of refuting others. And so the dialectician has a kind of likeness to the wise man there. The sophist wants to appear to refute, and Aristotle talks about two ways in which he appears to refute another. He writes, Sophistic arguments are those that appear to reason to a conclusion from probable premises, but actually reason badly, or those which reason well to a conclusion, but reason from premises that only appear to be probable. That is, Aristotle saying there are two ways the sophist achieves his end of apparent refutation. He either seems to reason, but does not. That is, he seems to make a good syllogism, but his syllogism is actually a bad one. Or he does make a good syllogism, but he starts not from probable premises, not from the opinions of his opponent, but rather from something that seems to be, but is not a probable premise, not an opinion that his opponent has granted to him. Now, how does he accomplish this? The tools that the sophist uses to accomplish these tricks are called fallacies. So our next main task is to talk about the kinds of fallacies and to give a couple of examples of each kind. We're going to be using very obvious fallacies when we talk about them because we're not so much concerned with seeing the sophist in action. He's going to use fallacies which are more deceptive, but because through using fallacies that are obviously fallacious, we can understand the nature of a fallacy. And then having understood that nature, we can apply that understanding to fallacies that are less obvious. Aristotle distinguishes two main kinds of fallacies, those which depend upon the use of language, of words, and those which do not depend upon the use of language. In other words, some fallacies are tricks in speaking, some are not tricks in speaking. The first kind he talks about are the fallacies which are fallacies in language, tricks about ways of speaking. Now Aristotle explains why these tricks can work. He says, names are finite, and so is the sum total of definitions, while things, real things, are infinite in number. Invariably, then, the same definitions and a single name have a number of meanings. Accordingly, just as in counting, those who are not clever in manipulating their counters are taken in by the experts, so also in arguments those who are not well acquainted with the force of names misreason, both in their own discussions and when they listen to others. Now, Aristotle's comparing reasoning to counting or accounting. 
We could take an accountant. Accounting is a very complicated business. Those who are expert accountants can deceive those who are not expert. They can, as they say, cook the books. They can make it appear that something's been paid for when it's not. And then they can steal the money. And the same thing can happen with language. Since words have many meanings, those who are not as adept at using words to reason, who don't realize that words have these many meanings, can be taken in by those who do. So just like the dishonest accountant can make something look like it's paid for when it's not been, so also the dishonest user of words can treat a word that has two meanings as if it had just one. Now, words do have two meanings, and that's not always a bad thing. We talked about this before. In analogy, it's a good and necessary thing. But when I use two meanings of a word as if they were really the same meaning, in order to apparently refute another, but not actually do so, I've used the fallacy, which is called the fallacy of equivocation. The fallacy of equivocation is the first fallacy, the first tool of the sophist. Let me give a very obvious example of it. An activist for animal rights might go to a baseball game to protest, and she reasons as follows. Baseball mistreats animals. For to use an animal to hit a hard baseball is to mistreat it. But to use a bat is to use an animal to hit a hard baseball. Therefore, to use a bat is to mistreat animals. And baseball always does that. Baseball must be wrong. Now, it's easy to see the fallacy in this case. The word bat has two meanings. But the animal rights activist is using the word bat as if it only had one meaning. Now, bat can mean both the flying animal and it can mean a wooden stick. She's assuming that the two meanings are the same, so that when I use a stick to hit a baseball, I'm actually also using a nocturnal animal to hit the baseball. So, she has apparently refuted the baseball fan who thinks that baseball is perfectly humane, but she has not actually done so. That's the fallacy of equivocation. And that's the first tool used by the sophist. Now, there are other types of fallacies that use tricks of language, but they're all very much like the fallacy of equivocation. In the accompanying text, we'll have a discussion of all the other kinds of fallacies, but I want to focus on the fallacy of equivocation, make sure that we understand that. Through understanding that, we'll be able to understand the others. Let's move on then to fallacies that do not use language, tricks of language. And the second kind of fallacy, the fallacy that does not use a trick of language, is called the fallacy of the accident. It rests upon a kind of deceptiveness of the relation between accidents and the subjects to which those accidents belong. That is, it assumes that everything predicated of a subject is essential to it. When we know that sometimes accidents are predicated of subjects that are not essential to them. Well, let me give you an example to make this clear. Okay, prior to the age of exploration, some Northern European might have had very few or no occasions to see human beings of other races. 
So he might tend to think that the accident of having white skin color was something that was essential to human nature. In other words, he says, since all the men that I have seen are white, it must be the case that all men are white. Being white belongs to the very nature of man. When such a person first sees a man who is not white, he might be tempted to deny that person's humanity. And then his syllogism would take the following form. All men are white, no Indian is white, therefore no Indian is truly a man. Now this is not a deceptive use of language. The important terms, Indian, man, white, are all being used with just one meaning. The mistake is the statement that all men are white. That statement assumes that whiteness is essential to humanity when it is in fact merely accidental. So what can a sophist do? A sophist can look for accidental characteristics, have his opponent grant the accidental characteristic, but then appear to refute his opponent by taking that characteristic as if it were an essential characteristic. For example, the sophistical racist arguing against a good man would get the good man to grant the statement, men are white. Now the good man recognizes the truth of that statement only in its accidental form. That is, whiteness is an accident of some men. Some men are white. But the racist, being sophistic, would take that statement as if it were meant essentially and use it as if it meant that all men were white. Then he could secure his desired conclusion. Of course, the more that something accidental seems essential, the more deceptive a tool the fallacy of the accident is, and the more powerful a tool it is for the sophist. Now, just like there are more fallacies that are dependent on language than just the fallacy of equivocation, so also there are more fallacies that are independent of language than the fallacy of the accident. But they all have a likeness to the fallacy of the accident. So we can use the fallacy of the accident as the principle to come to understand the other fallacies, which we'll talk about at more length in the accompanying text. Therefore, right now I'd like to conclude our study of the sophistic part of logic. You have a general idea now of how to approach reading the book Sophistical Refutations. In our next and final lecture, we're going to talk briefly about the main tools of the final two parts of logic, rhetoric and poetics. Now, even though they themselves aim at something beyond a speculative knowledge of the truth, nevertheless, some of the tools used by the rhetorician and even by the poet are useful for the philosopher and the theologian. In fact, there are going to be three tools used by the rhetorician and the poet that are useful for the philosopher and theologian. Our consideration next time will focus on those three tools. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.